Thank you, worship team. Amen. Thank you, Sarai, for that wonderful uh, testimonial that reminds us that something good can come out of Nazareth, that Jesus was from the hood, that Sarai is from El Sereno, that I am from Nicaragua, and that together we are familia and something good can come out of this place as well. What an invitation for you to know where you are from, like where you are from, rooted from, that Jesus wasn't from nowhere, he was from somewhere, and so are you. And one of the definitions of justice that we learned this week, 28 of us joined a Zoom call this week with Sarah Obermeyer, Sarah Dornbos, Melika, and Phil. And Phil was giving a definition of justice, justicia. You were there, Mother Glendar. One of the takeaways, one of the many takeaways that I took that night was a, a, a definition of justice that I don't have the full definition, but two things stood out to me. That justice is to right the wrongs, and to repair the, the consequences of those wrongs. So somebody say, to right. to right, and to repair. So Jesus came to right the wrongs and to repair the consequences of those wrongs. One of those wrongs is how we have maybe an, a less than faithful theology of land. And for this reason, I am excited to introduce our guest preacher this evening, who has a biblical theology of land that he will be presenting to us this evening. He's been here before. He has uh, mobilized our church towards a more fair housing uh, justice initiatives here in the city of Pasadena. Thanks to your signatures, Measure H was passed last year or this year. I can't remember my pandemic brain. Forgets what month we are in. And so I am excited to welcome the Reverend Bert Newton here this evening who has mobilized us before and he's here now to speak to us and I'd like to invite you to open your hearts and open your minds to a new definition of justicia and to the way that we see the land and our connection to that land just like Sarai started inviting us into this evening. His friend Jude Batista is here as well. He is a veteran. I heard earlier that he has been also uh, canvassing the neighborhoods and doing the work of housing justice. So thank you Jude for being with us this evening. So please welcome P Pastor Bert Newton. Yes, uh, thank you. I count it an honor and a privilege to be here speaking with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, you, the church we hope for, um, has demonstrated a deep understanding of the gospel. Having heard your pastors, Inez and Bobby, preach, and also the testimonial just a while ago, and having talked with many of you as you signed letters and others who participated in our campaigns for housing justice, I know that you understand that social justice, that economic justice, is at the heart of the gospel. Amen. Not just a secondary good idea, Amen. but at the heart of the gospel, that the reign of God, that the kingdom of God spoken of in the gospel is the reign of God's justice and mercy that is breaking into our world through communities that embody its practices, through communities that do the will of God. So I know I'm talking to people here who know a thing or two about God's justice. And I come to you humbly, uh, counting it an honor and a privilege to speak to this group. We're experiencing here in Southern California and in the entire country, and even 
throughout the world a housing crisis. There's not enough to go around, and what there is is too expensive for many people. So we're experiencing displacement and homelessness at unprecedented levels. Now, we Christians like to turn to the Bible for all our answers, right? The Bible has all the answers. But does the Bible have answers for us in terms of this housing and homelessness crisis? Well, it turns out it does. Turns out that over 2,700 years ago, in eight centuries before Jesus, ancient Israel was experiencing a severe housing crisis. We know this because Isaiah was talking about it. Can you give me the, the Isaiah slide? Isaiah said, Woe to you who add house to house and field to field until there is room for no one but you and you are left to live alone in the land. He was castigating the wealthy for buying up land and houses and displacing the common people, the poor people. Now, when that happens today, what do we call that? Gentrification, right? Give me gentrification. There it is, gentrification. Now, an interesting question for us to consider when we read this is, were the wealthy in this passage, were the wealthy breaking any laws? Was what they were doing illegal? And what's wrong with people buying extra land and houses if they've got the money? I mean, we buy things, extra things we don't need, and we have the money, right? And do we worry about who's being harmed? Do we worry about whether we're supporting sweatshops or other brutal working conditions or whether we're supporting environmental disaster that falls hardest on the poorest people in the world? Gentrification is generally a legal process done by very nice people. If you meet them, you think they were nice people. So maybe one thing we need to consider here is that not everything that the law allows is good. That sometimes the law allows some pretty horrible stuff. But as it turns out, there was a kind of legal foundation, a general legal foundation that was being violated in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, God owned the land. The land ultimately belonged to God. This is repeated over and over throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Often it comes to us in English, the earth is the Lord's. But that word for earth is the Hebrew word Eretz, which can be translated earth or land. In fact, it's usually translated as land, but for some reason, whenever the translators, the ones who translate it into English, when they say that it belongs to God, they usually translate it as earth. Now, when it's translated as earth, it still should give us pause to consider that what we do on the earth, what we do with the earth, really matters because the earth belongs to God. But for the most part, it's too grandiose, right? It's too abstract, it's like a pious statement, the earth, the earth is the Lord's, and then we go on and just, you know, whatever. But if it's translated land, then it's a little bit more immediate, right? It kind of brings it down to earth. The ground we walk on, the land we walk on, the land we live on belongs to God. And what we do with the land, what we do on the land really matters because it belongs to God. And human ownership of the land is not absolute. For those of us who were raised in a capitalist culture, which is probably all of us here, right? Maybe some, there's somebody here that wasn't, but for most of us who were raised in the capitalist culture and our minds were formed in it, our minds have been capitalized by it, uh, capitalized, colonized by it. Um, I think the verse that brings us home to us best is Leviticus 25, 23. Can you give me that slide? 
The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is God talking. For the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants. Yeah, let me read that again. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants. So you can see that central theme there. The land belongs to God. It's right in the center of the verse. And on each side there's a corollary. On one side, it says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. In other words, those who buy it with money are not the ultimate owners. Their ownership rights are secondary, limited, and temporary. By the way, this is not what it was like under Roman law. When Jesus comes along 700 years later, the Romans control everything. And under Roman law, human ownership rights are, are absolute. But not in ancient Israel. So on one side, it says that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. On the other side, with me you are but aliens and tenants. So we're used to thinking of some people as aliens, you know, foreigners, and some people as citizens. Some people are tenants and others are owners. That's embedded into our, the way we think, right? But God says, no, with me you're all aliens and tenants on my land. This is a great equalizer. And this comes in the context of the, the great chapter on Jubilee. This is Leviticus 25, the, 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 the chapter about the year of Jubilee. How many people here have heard of the year of Jubilee? Great. Now, how many people have heard of the Sabbath year? Excellent. So more people have heard of Jubilee than the Sabbath year. Okay, that's interesting. So tell me, what happens in the Sabbath year? Can somebody tell me what happens in the Sabbath year? The land rests, okay. It, so it's, it's environmental legislation. The land gets its rest. What else happens in the Sabbath year? Anybody know? So the, uh, another thing that happens in the Sabbath year is all debts were canceled. All debts were canceled. Every seven years. Can you imagine if we did that today in the United States? Cancel all debts every seven years? Can you imagine that? The, uh, you know... Right now, the president's trying to cancel a little bit of student debt, and half of Congress is losing its mind. Can you imagine if we tried to can if we did that every seven years? So that's what happened every seven years. And then the Jubilee was the Super Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath of Sabbath years. So after 49 years, in the 50th year, they blew the trumpet horn, they blew the ram's horn, and they declared the year of Jubilee. All debts were forgiven, all debt slaves were set free, all land lay fallow. And one more thing happened. Does anybody else know what happened in the year of Jubilee? What were you saying? Yeah, all land went back to its original owners. So what had happened is when Israel entered the land, the land was divided up evenly among the families and tribes and clans. But in the intervening, you know, as time went on, you know, somebody might have a bad harvest. They might go into debt. They might lose their land. So some people lost land. Other people gained land. As usually happens, when people get a, you know, get a leg up, they can take advantage of it. They can build on their winnings. And people that are falling behind get further and further behind. So that would happen. But in the 50th year, everything would be reset back to how it was. So, so you had complete debt forgiveness every seven years. And then in the 50th year, this major land reform, where every, everything, all the families that lost their land get it back, this was to maintain Israel as an, an economically egalitarian society. 
an economically egalitarian society. So now, how many people, has anybody here heard that the Jubilee was never practiced? Anybody heard that? Oh, good. There's several hands here. So what, why do people say the Jubilee was never practiced? Like, what's behind that? You can guess? What can you guess? People in authority wouldn't like that. It's kind of a way of getting around it, right? And it's kind of strange because we don't know that the Jubilee was never practiced. It's not in the Bible anywhere. This is just what some scholars think. And I know people that know nothing else about biblical scholarship, but they know this one thing. The Jubilee was never practiced. It's not even something we know. Uh, I know people that you know, are very adamant the Bible is the word of God, but the Jubilee was never practiced, so we don't have to pay attention to that part of it. You know, so, and, and it's a strange argument. What, what else do we do that with where we say there's a commandment that people didn't follow, so we don't have to follow it? Do we do that with anything else? <laughs> and we do know that the, the Sabbath year was practiced. There's plenty of evidence of that. It, it got neglected as time went on. By the time of Jesus, there was a way, way to get around it. But, um, but it, it was practiced, and that is pretty radical. Uh, debt forgiveness every seven years is pretty radical. But even if it was not uh, practiced, uh, it's still the, 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 the prophets kept bringing it up. And it was because it was getting neglected that the prophets would keep bringing it up. In fact, Ezekiel not only brings it up, he expands it. Because the original legislation in Leviticus 25 was only for Israelites. When Ezekiel brings it up, he includes the foreigners among them. So Ezekiel is writing from Babylon. He's, he's writing from the exile. There's a period in Israel's history where the people were taken, or a lot of the people were taken into exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel was a priest. He was taken into exile. And he's, he's writing from, from Babylon. He's imagining a return to the land. So this would be like the first time they entered the land. The land would be divided up equally, right? And, he's, and this time, he says, or God says through him, that the land will, will be divided up equally, and it will include... The foreigners or the aliens, how it gets translated. Um, so can you give me the Ezekiel slide? There we go. So Ezekiel uh, 47, 21 to 23. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who reside among you and have begotten children among you. They shall be to you as citizens of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted their inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe aliens reside, there you shall assign them their inheritance, says the Lord God. Can you imagine if we did that today? Uh, gave land to people, to, to immigrants, who, and the for, people who we consider foreigners now, gave them land, gave them their inheritance of land. So... Ezekiel not only remember brings up the Jubilee, he actually expands it. And then Jesus, in his first sermon in Luke, he says it's the reason that the Spirit of the Lord is on him. It is the reason. Can you give me the Luke slide? He says, he's reading from uh, the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor was the year of Jubilee. And you can Google this. Every, all commentators, whether they're conservative, progressive, whatever they are, 
whether even commentators that don't care about economic justice agree that uh, Isaiah 61 refers to the year of Jubilee. Jesus is saying that the reason the Spirit is on him is to proclaim the year of Jubilee, this ancient legislation of land reform. Now, this will mess up your theology because it ain't what we were taught in Sunday school. Western theology has not made room for a lot of what is actually in the gospel. I always say the best way to mess up your theology is to read the Bible. <laughs> so what I want to do right now is I'm going to read Matthew 25. Go ahead and give me the first slide from that. And I want uh, five volunteers. Do we have a, a, a handheld mic? Can I get um, five volunteers to, I don't know if I'm going to have to do this one right after the other. Uh, can, Jude, can we start with you? Jude, yes. Um, and just, there's five slides, because it's, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a long parable. So uh, there's five slides. So why don't we start here, go back there, and then maybe Bobby, and then we'll go from there. All right. <laughs> Jude, go ahead and read the first slide. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Let me pass it back. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? or in prison and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away in, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, thank you. So a couple of things I want us to notice about this, we're very you know familiar with this, but I want us to notice that this is not about what Christians merely what Christians should do. This is about salvation. 
Did you notice that? Those who do these things go into eternal life with Jesus. Those who don't, it says, go into eternal punishment. Now, again, this will mess up your theology because this ain't what they taught us in Sunday school. Um, and, and even I would say that, you know, this is, this is hyperbolic. Uh, a lot of what Jesus does in the Gospels is hyperbolic. It's exaggeration to make a point. But he's saying this is what salvation looks like when we do these things, when we create a community in which we take care of each other. That's what salvation looks like. And that's the other thing I want you to notice. And can you back up to the first slide of, of Matthew 25? Okay. So it says, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. Who's being judged? Is it individuals? The nations are being judged, right? Whole nations. This isn't just about individuals. This is about a collective thing, right? Now, we tend to interpret everything individualistically because the United States... Sociologists and anthropologists will tell you this. The United States is the most individualistic culture the world has ever seen. And so we tend to interpret everything individualistically. And we miss the collective stuff that's going on in the gospel. But here, whole nations are being judged. So we can talk about whole, you know, political entity under one government. So we can talk about it as a nation, as the state of California, as the city of Pasadena. So this is not just about what individuals do. This is about what we do together as a community. The question is, how do we as a nation, as a society, take care of the hungry and the homeless, those among us who are most vulnerable, our most vulnerable brothers and sisters? This is the question, the challenge of salvation. And so that is the work that we do at MHCH, at Making Housing and Community Happen. We help people do Matthew 25, Luke 4, the outward work of the gospel. The church creates community. And teaches its people, but it's hard to know how to do it out in the world, how to do the gospel out in the world. It's central to we, we, what we should be doing in the church, but it is, in many ways, times, specialized work. And that's where organizations like MHCH come in. We're a local Pasadena-based group. We've been doing this work for over 25 years. Now, most of that time I was doing it as a volunteer, but in the last almost four years I've been doing it as a, as a paid organizer. Because we, we finally formed a nonprofit to raise money uh, about four or five years ago. So our work has resulted in upwards, depending on how you count them, upwards of 2,000 units of affordable housing already built in Pasadena. And thousands more are in the pipeline. When we started out, it was slow. We didn't see our, the fruit of our labor for a long time. But as time has gone on, it's kind of sped up, and we're now entering into, into sort of a harvest of affordable housing. There's stuff being built right now. There's stuff in the pipeline in a few years. Uh, we're going to see a lot more affordable housing. And someone mentioned, mentioned Measure H. We finally got that passed. 20 years. We finally got Measure H passed, rent control. Uh, we're going to have a bus tour next month uh, to go around to different sites of affordable housing. Uh, if you want to be part of that, let me know. It, we, it's, the bus costs a lot, of, a lot of money, so we are charging $50 a ticket. But uh, we do have some scholarships, so let me know if you really want to do that. Um, we have another initiative uh, that we... Got, well, uh, accessory dwelling units, you know, those are the back houses, granny flats that people have. Back about 20 years ago, Pasadena and some other cities put a stop to building those. And anytime you stop the supply of housing, it puts upward pressure on the price of housing. It's one of the things that made housing costs rise. 
And so um, taking advantage of every opportunity, we tried to get Pasadena to not do that. Pasadena wouldn't budge. We went to the state. We got a state legislator uh, to get legislation going, which passed through both houses in the state and forced Pasadena and other cities to allow the building of ADUs. Uh, recently, there was an article that came out and said that because of that law, over 22,000 ADUs have already been built across the state, and thousands more are in the pipeline. And we have hundreds in the pipeline here in Pasadena. I'm not sure how many have already been built. So how do we do it? We mobilize the faith community. We do it through thousands, we've done it through thousands of emails and petitions, meeting with city council members, meeting with state legislators, hours and hours of testimony at city council meetings and with state legislators. Jude here, Jude Bautista, who, who Inez mentioned, uh, when he was 12, you're 13 now, right? Last year when he was 12, he testified at a city council meeting and a planning commission meeting. Amen. Amen. A 12-year-old can do it. Um, and and he has, he's done many other things as well. We've done it through public witness actions, public prayer vigils, rallies, marches, through community organizing. Jesus was a community organizer. And we collectively need to be community organizers. All of us can participate at that at some level. Uh, can you give me the next slide, or the, the slide after the, after the Matthew 20? Okay, Heritage Square South. So this is being built right now. It should be done at the end of the year. This is the result of one of our campaigns. It's going to be 69 units of permanent supportive housing for seniors who are experiencing homelessness. Amen. Seniors are the fastest growing uh, group of our homeless population. It's going to be 69 units. Permanent supportive means it's going to come with services, not just housing, but services. So the, the city owns this land, and it was supposed to use it for housing because it was bought with HUD money, housing and urban development. But it, wasn't going to, it was going to sell the land. So we initiated a campaign. It was a nine-month campaign. We started with a prayer vigil, and then some of us slept over. Uh, after the prayer vigil, we slept over with some of our brothers and sisters who that was their home. They slept outside. That was where they lived. And so we slept there. We got in over 1,000 emails and petition signatures to the city council, went to multiple city council meetings and committee meetings, hours of testimony. The churches came out. Pastors came out, stayed late into the night testifying hours of testimony, and finally at one city council meeting, 11 o'clock at night, we won. We won this, yes, thank you. We won 60, the 69 units. So that was several years ago. It's taken a while to get together the financing, but it's being built right now. If you go to the corner of Orange Grove and Fair Oaks, it is being built. It will be done by the end of the year. It was so, over, the, the mayor was so overwhelmed. Uh, not, it was not the current mayor, the previous mayor, Terry Tornick, was so overwhelmed. He used to be an affordable housing developer in his previous uh, career. And uh, he, seeing the churches come out, people stay late into the night, that he decided right there that his next uh, goal was going to make the, the old YWCA into permanent supportive housing for our brothers and sisters who are homeless. Uh, the old YWCA is on Marengo uh, here in Pasadena. It's been empty for over 30, it's been basically vacant for over 30 years. So we started, we initially jumped on that. The rest of the council wasn't into it, but the mayor wanted it. So we jumped on it. Um, it turned out that that building has historic preservation values. It was a little bit, it's gonna be a million dollars a room or a unit, it wasn't gonna be feasible. But there's another empty lot right there in the Civic Center. Um, most people don't know it's there because it's got a fence around it and trees and bushes, but it's there. So we switched our campaign to that and we did another like nine month a year campaign. We did, we started with a vigil on Marengo, then we would go over to the Robinson Brothers Memorial and do a prayer circle. 
you know, you know, Jackie Robinson, after his baseball career, became an affordable housing developer. Uh, and then we would go up to the city council and testify. Every city council meeting, we did that for months until the pandemic hit. And then we took it online because you could attend city councils online during the pandemic. And we won. We got 106 units of senior housing. 10% of it will be permanent supportive for our senior brothers and sisters who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, next slide. So SB4, this is one of the current campaigns we're doing. We've been at this for a while, to rezone church land and now college land for affordable housing. We had a campaign here in Pasadena, got limited results, but we've been working at a state level. So this is Senate Bill 4. So this is its third iteration. We got this going three years ago. It's its third iteration, but just a week before last, it passed the Senate. So we got it through, yes, passed the Senate. So the California Senate, uh, we got it through three Senate committees, rallied each time, uh, got it to the Senate floor, passed it. Uh, so now it's got to go through the assembly. So some of you signed a letter for it. How many people here signed a letter for SB4? Thank you for signing the letter. And then so some of you, uh, at least one or two of you were on the call with Senator Portentino when we talked about this. Somebody here? Yes, Sandy. And oh, okay, you were, yes, yes, it was you. I know I recognized you. Okay. Now you were on the call with Senator Portentino. So this summer, we make, we're going to try to organize a call with uh, Assemblymember Chris Holden. So that will be another opportunity. Um, so next, uh, next slide. Uh, school land. Schools have been closing left and right over the last 20 years here in Pasadena. Almost half of the school sites are now closed. This is because housing is so expensive that families who send their kids to public schools cannot afford to live here anymore. The population of Pasadena has not been decreasing. It has been slowly increasing. So it's not that we have a lower population. It's that families who send their kids to public schools can no longer afford to live here. Someone told me just this, this morning that 51% of school-age kids in Pasadena go to private schools, and that we've got one of the highest private schools uh, per capita in the nation. So it's a big divide, the story, the, the, the tale of two cities, right? And so people, this is a result of gentrification. So we have been looking at developing some of the school sites that have been closed into affordable housing. Not all of them, because some of them maybe will reopen one day, but, um, but some of them, because there's so many now. So on Thursday night, the school board, this Thursday night at 6 p.m., the school board is going to consider, they're going to talk about uh, using the old Roosevelt Elementary School site that was closed in 2019 for affordable housing. It has to, by law, it has to be affordable housing for school district staff. But uh, teachers here are making only a little over 60,000 a year, the beginning teachers, uh, which is a lot less than the surrounding districts. And, um, you know, your average one bedroom here, or two bed is, is like uh, 3,000 a month. So times 12, that's 3,600. That means they're paying over half their, if they're renting, it, they're paying over half their salary just for housing. And that's the teachers. There are other school district employees, such as janitors, uh, teachers' aides, teacher aides, did I say that? Oh, oh the lunch, lunch room workers. So this could be housing for all of them. So 6 o'clock um, on Thursday evening at 351 South Hudson, the school district building, we need people to come out and testify. If you can do that, we can give you the information, we can give you the talking points, I can meet with you. Um, so after the service, we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna be in the back, Jude and I will. We have a sign-up sheet, you can give us your contact information, let us know 
If you can do that, or if you can't do that, if you want to get our weekly newsletter or anything else that you want to do, just give us your contact information to get involved in the work. So I'm going to leave it there because I think we've got a really great liturgy coming up. So thank you. Thank you, Pastor Newton. Can we just give it up for him again? <laughs> Not only just for him, but everyone at making housing and communities happen. Justice work, you guys, is not sexy work. It's not romantic work. It's not an Instagram post kind of work. It is battering, the battering rams of justice, right, that Dr. King said over and over and over. City council to city council to city council meeting. So thank you for a decade's worth, probably 15 years worth of work of going every Monday night or Thursday night to many, many a meeting uh, and to mobilize us. So it is an honor to have been formed by you um, in what you have deposited today. And we, we take it seriously. If we say that we are a beloved community, moved by the spirit to follow the life, love, and justicia of Jesus. We want to know how to be better stewards of God's land and God's resources. Um, so thank you uh, for that mobilization. And uh, Ju Jude and uh, Bert will be in the back if you all want to know how to uh, actively engage. I'd like to us to move, yes, into a time of um, land acknowledgement and a prayer in connected to, uh, to the land, to a, a theology of land. And I'd like to invite us to just take a deep breath first, because that was a lot of good information and a good spiritual formation, and we're unlearning and relearning how to think about God, how to think about the land, and how to think about our resources, and how to think about how us as humans are connected to the land and the history and the unhistory of injustice in the land. We've done a land acknowledgement here before. The first time that we met in this building in 2021, we did an, a land acknowledgement, and I'd like to want for us to do it again. And if you don't know what that is, I'm going to walk us through it. A land acknowledgement is a formal statement presented at the beginning of public events and gatherings that recognizes and honors indigenous peoples as traditional stewards of the land. Acknowledgement is a simple, powerful way of showing respect and a step towards correcting the stories and practices that erase indigenous people's history and culture and toward inviting and honoring the truth. And I might add also that as a truth of our nation's history is being suppressed in certain places around the country, for example, Florida, telling the truth about the history of the land is as prophetic an act as ever. And we are followers of Yahweh. So we acknowledge that the church we hope for, or in this mission gathering building, sits on the land of the Hahamanga Tonga people, who historically inhabited the San Gabriel Valley area around present day Pasadena and Altadena. We honor their connection to this region and give thanks for the opportunity to live and work and worship and learn on their traditional homeland. So please take a moment of silence to pay respect to the, their elders 
and to all Gabelino and Tonga people, past and present. We're going to move now into the last movement of lament about the land. And we're all going to read the parts that say all together, you're going to read with me. And then the parts that say leader, I will read. Um, and you will um, listen with me. And we'll do this together. So all. God of the land. God of the stranger. God of the oppressed. We lament. This nation was birthed amidst the genocide of indigenous peoples. And it was all too often through the theological legitimizing that the violence of European settlers and strategic eradication of inhabitants was made possible. For the genocide of indigenous peoples, we lament. We lament the treaties with Native American tribes that have gone unfulfilled, unratified, or simply broken by our government. The reality of land that is not solely a past reality. It is also a present one. We lament the violence that continues against indigenous people today, systemic poverty, the ongoing disappearance of native women and girls, and the disproportionate rate of incarceration. For the continued oppression of native peoples living in occupied territory, we lament. We lament the ways in which this colonized understanding of the land as something to be owned, subjugated, or stolen continues to plague our society today, just as the original inhabitants of our land were displaced. Our own cities today face a housing crisis. The displacement of poor, predominantly black and brown, and many LBGTQIA individuals minds us of the legacy of land theft that others and displaces. For the displacement of people from their homes, we lament. And now, turn our eyes to you, O Lord, creator, gardener, and breath of life. Give us the vision to see your abundance spring forth from the earth. We reject the imperial lie of scarcity and open our hearts to the abundance of your good creation. May we love mercy. May we walk humbly. May we do justly as we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the land. Say this with me. We receive the abundance of your good creation and we trust that there is more than enough to go around. Amen and amen. Invite the worship. Oh, Jason. <laughs> 